This is 99 Novels, a podcast by the International Anthony Burgess Foundation. In 1984, the writer Anthony Burgess selected his 99 favourite novels in English since the outbreak of the Second World War. Never short of an opinion about books, Burgess's list is typically idiosyncratic and invites closer attention, so we've invited some of the leading scholars, critics and writers to tell us more about each of the 99 novels. So read along with us as we explore a reading list created by one of the most original literary voices of the 20th century. In this episode, we're exploring Heartland by Sir Wilson Harris, a complex and experimental novel which pushes the boundaries of fiction in unexpected ways. Published in 1964, Heartland tells the story of Zachariah Stevenson, a watchman for a timber company in the interior of Guyana. The son of a wealthy businessman, Stevenson is on the run from fraud accusations and the suspicious disappearance of his mistress. As the forest reveals its own ancient mysteries, Stevenson starts to lose track of his mind. Cursed with a fear of the unknown, he is visited by various characters who emerge from the treeline like apparitions. Harris's writing is as dense as the forest it describes, and the novel blends poetry and prose as Stevenson begins to question the boundaries between the living and the dead. In 99 Novels, Anthony Burgess declares the novel remarkable, writing, quote, Harris has the courage to realise the impossibility of conveying, with the ordinary devices of the prose novel, states of mind corresponding to the horror and grandeur of primeval nature. His own work is on the border between logic and magic. He is probably the best of the Caribbean novelists. Sir Wilson Harris is widely regarded as one of the most innovative and original writers of the 20th century. He was born in British Guyana in 1921 and went on to train as a government surveyor, a post which gave him intimate knowledge of the interior of Guyana and the Amerindian people who live there, a foundational theme in many of his novels. Harris began writing short stories, poems and essays in the 1950s, eventually publishing his first novel, The Palace of the Peacock, in 1960. He went on to write 23 more novels, including his 1996 masterpiece, Jonestown, which is a poetic and troubling exploration of Jim Jones's cult commune in the wilderness of Guyana. He was knighted for services to literature in 2010. So Wilson Harris died at the age of 96 in 2018. To help us understand Heartland, we invited Michael Mitchell onto the podcast. Michael is a lecturer at the University of Paderborn in Germany and an honorary fellow at the Yesu Pesord Centre of Caribbean Studies at the University of Warwick. He's written extensively on post-colonial literature, especially the works of Sir Wilson Harris, and has recently written introductions to the Wilson Harris novels Ascent of Omai, The Eye of the Scarecrow and Heartland, all published by People Tree Press. You can find a list of all the books mentioned and all the relevant links in the description of this episode. I'm Graham Foster of the Burgess Foundation, and I spoke to Michael Mitchell in November 2021.
Michael, thanks for, for joining us on the 99 Novels podcast today. We're going to be talking about Sir Wilson Harris, specifically his, his novel Heartland, which is the one Burgess chose to be part of his 99 novels. Uh, but the first question is, uh, how, how did you first encounter Heartland and, and what did you make of it when you, when you first read it? Well, you have to sort of look at it rather more in context. I didn't read Heartland until relatively late compared to other novels by Wilson Harris, partly because uh, it's very difficult to get hold of. Um, a lot of the novels uh, went out of print. And uh, the only way of getting hold of them was in uh, university libraries. <clears throat> so um, Heartland, actually, um, the the reason I, I got involved with that was I was asked by Jeremy Pointing, who is uh, in charge of the People Tree Press, and he asked me whether I would re- uh, write an introduction to his new edition of Heartland, um, which was due to come out in 2009. Um, So I didn't really uh, work on it. I I think I'd read it once before, as I say, in a university copy, but I hadn't thought very much about it. And so that was um, where I got to know it a bit more. Um, The first novel I read, I think a lot of people's first experience of Wilson Harris was The Palace of the Peacock, um, that extraordinary novel that came out in 1960. And I'm slightly surprised that Burgess didn't actually include that one um, because it would have fallen within the the period that he was talking about. Um, Perhaps we'll come to why Heartland later on. Uh, Why did he include that one and not Palace of the Peacock or one of the others in the Guyana Quartet? But um, Palace of the Peacock I read, uh, I was amazed by, but um, again, didn't really know what to make of it. And then in 1996, uh, I was at a book launch in London, a new novel by David Dabberdeen, and uh, he tapped me on the shoulder and said, oh, I'd like you to meet my friend Wilson Harris. Well, for somebody who's interested in in literature, particularly Caribbean literature, um, this was rather like being, well, you know, some people uh, sort of hero worship footballers or musicians or whatever. But uh, Wilson Harris is a bit like kind of, uh, I'd like you to meet the Queen, really. It was extraordinary. And um, we got into conversation immediately, and he wanted to know what I was doing. I was just starting a PhD for for uh, David Dabberdeen, and uh, he was talking about his latest novel, which was Jonestown. Um, and we spent the whole evening, several hours, uh, talking. Um, Somebody came up from the BBC and wanted to organize an interview. Uh, and he said, oh, no, go away. I'm talking to this man. Uh, <laughs> and uh, it led to uh, a friendship which was, uh, you know, um, uh, at the beginning, uh, more distanced, but uh, gradually became much closer. And uh, towards the end of his life, um, I was very close to him indeed and indeed uh, wrote his obituary in The Guardian um, when he died. So um, Heartland, um, 
I kind of came back to then after reading a lot of other novels. Um, and as with all Wilson Harris novels, in my experience, they're not that easy to read. There's a, there's a question, is it easy or not? One or two people say, oh, yes, it's easy. There's no problem. Other people say it's really difficult and I, I couldn't make head or tail of it. I was somewhere in the middle, I think, um, reading Wilson Harris always reminded me of going through a forest, perhaps a rainforest, and then coming out suddenly into a clearing and you have a view. And you think when you see this view, if the whole of this novel is as well thought out and as brilliant as the view I'm getting now, <laughs> then I must go back and, and look at it in more detail. And I think Heartland was was similar, um, although it's uh, it is a transitional novel. Uh, Wilson called it a transitional novel himself, um, but uh, yeah, that was that was very much the the approach that I had to it. And the more you look at it, the more you read it. And you have to read Harris novels backwards and forwards. It's no use just reading in one direction. And you have to realize what sort of writing it is. I expect we'll come back to that. Um, uh, but having done that, you recognize more and more things. I was also lucky enough to uh, get to know Hena Masjelinek, the uh, Belgian scholar who uh, has written most uh, perceptively about Harris's work. And she pointed out when I was sort of a bit worried and, and thought, now, have I got the right idea? And she said, there, there is no right idea with Harris. There are so many facets. There are so many possibilities. Um, it is an infinite rehearsal in which you find more and more things. And as long as you're reading carefully, you are uh, going to be along the right track. So I, that gave me a, a bit of um, confidence in, in trying to uh, introduce the, the novel to the reader. I wanted to make the reader, um, to give the reader a kind of introduction leading into the novel so that they won't be scared by it because um, I think that um, people need to come across Harris and need to uh, see what he's doing because it is completely extraordinary, as C.L.R. James noted right from the beginning, uh, very early comments on, on Harris's work. Uh, I think that's really interesting. And actually, my, my feeling when I first picked up Heartland, uh, it's such a slight book physically that you think, oh, I'm going to breeze through this. But actually, it's, it's a book that you read a couple of pages and and stop to to take your breath to think to to sort of try and determine what what is going on in the in the very very dense writing um so it's it's it it's sort of slim size belies its complexity i think that's definitely true and uh, most of the novels are around about the same length um 100 120 pages uh, jonestown is longer um but um, as you say, that is deceptive, <laughs> um, partly because of the question of what sort of language it is, um, mm. which I think we're going to, to come on to a sure. little later. Yeah. 
Um, in terms of this being one of the 99 novels, I mean, Burgess knew Wilson Harris and, and was a, a very early supporter uh, of Harris and, and his work. He reviewed very early books. I think he reviewed The Palace of the Peacock um, very early in, in the 1960s, I think, and, and they became correspondents. Uh, but out of all of Harris's books that were published before 1984, which is when the, the list was written, why do you think Burgess chose Heartland in particular? I don't know. <laughs> As I say, I was I was slightly puzzled by that myself, uh, except that being a transitional novel, it does suggest a new direction after the, the, Guyana, uh, the Guyana Quartet. It looks as though it's going somewhere else, um, which is kind of what is clear in, in the last uh, lines of, of the, the prose part of the novel. Stevenson did not know where the road led. He only knew it was there. Um, and perhaps that was what intrigued Burgess. I'm not sure. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't think we can be sure. But but in terms of when he was writing 99 novels in 1984, what was the reputation of Wilson Harris generally and, and maybe the novel particularly? Um, I don't think most people uh, really had read them. Uh, I, I think it was very much um, an unusual uh, taste. Um, I, I don't think they were very well known at all. The early critical writing really about Harris begins in the 1970s rather than the 60s. And, of course, um, <laughs> although uh, Harris was published right from the beginning and right up to the end by Faber and Faber. Um, it wasn't entirely simple to get published. Um, his novel, Palace of the Peacock, uh, went to Faber and then went on to the slush pile, the famous slush pile. And interestingly enough, the same person who picked up William Golding's Lord of the Flies from the, from the slush pile, Charles Monteith, uh, he also picked up Wilson Harris's Palace of the Peacock and said, we need to publish this. Um, and uh, Harris was uh, overwhelmed when he heard that um, it was going to be published and wanted to get back to tell his wife about it. Uh, and then somebody said, well, would you like to meet T.S. Eliot, who was, of course, the boss of, of Faber at the time? Uh, <laughs> Wilson said, oh, no, I've got to get back to my wife to tell her about this. And so actually he never met um, T.S. Eliot. Uh, but um, no, I don't think uh, there was much of a reputation for the novel at the time. Obviously, if a novel is published by Faber, it, you know, it's a reputable publisher. But even the later novels, when they came out, they didn't find their way into most bookshops. And being so unusual, um, they didn't immediately find a broad readership. So... Um, I think Burgess was very perceptive to have noticed that that Harris was something was something special. Harris's work in general sort of defies the expectations a, a British reader may have of Caribbean literature. Um we're we're used to reading, perhaps at school maybe, um, some of the 
the Caribbean writers that come to to Britain, specifically London. I'm thinking of Sam Selvin, maybe Jean Rhys, who who are writing about their experiences immigrants. Uh, how do, how does Wilson Harris defy that in his own writing? Yeah, I'm not absolutely sure that most people at school, for example, read any Caribbean literature at all, except for the people who have completely settled in in Britain, people like John Agard or or Grace Nichols. Um, I don't know to what extent uh, Selvin is read now at schools. Um, Obviously, other people would, would get to know that. Of course, Caribbean literature is so various, uh, so multifaceted and so extraordinary that it's very difficult to say expectations of of Caribbean literature. Um, I mean, people sort of think of the Caribbean uh, in terms of of holidays and and reggae and and rum and so on. But of course, um, actually, uh, Caribbean literature is, is, as I say, extraordinary in its diversity. First, getting to know not only people, uh, novelists like like Naipaul, but particularly uh, a poet and playwright like Derek Walcott, as well as as Wilson Harris, you begin to see the depth and and breadth of what is going on there. And um, how does it defy expectations? Well, it's definitely an experimental novel. Heartland and all of Wilson Harris's work is in that sense experimental. Um, again, going back to C.L.R. James, who, who gave a talk way back in, let me just check, I think it's 1957. Oh no, 1965, sorry, a little later. 1965, he gave a talk which was then later published. Uh, Wilson Harris, a philosophical approach in which he looked at the way in which you could read Harris through a lens of Heidegger. Um, In particular, the idea that there is a kind of surface level uh, to life, which is what sort of the traditional novel has often given us, what Harris himself used to call the comedy of manners. Um, and uh, something much more philosophical, something much more deep beneath it. Uh, James said that he thought that Harris took Heidegger off into the uh, into the rainforest. You, I'm sure, are aware that Harris actually wasn't didn't begin as an author at all. He he was trained as a scientist. He uh, became a government surveyor in what was then British Guyana and was sent off to uh, conduct um, ex- uh, to expeditions up the great rivers of, of Guyana. The idea was uh, possibly to harness these rivers for hydroelectric power. Um, but he surveyed the rivers of, of Guyana all through, and that is how he got to know the landscape. And... Um, so uh, when he went into the into the interior, he noticed that um, you couldn't very easily express the landscape that he had come into. Um, 
to come back to what I just said about possibly taking Heidegger, very interestingly, I've just uh, discovered, because I, I, all of Wilson's books are now with me. We're hoping that they will be stored in Cambridge for scholars to be able to refer to. I mean, not his own books, not the ones he read, he wrote, but the books he possessed. And one is a very heavily annotated edition of The Secret of the Golden Flower in the translation by Richard Wilhelm and, and with a commentary by C.G. Jung. And um, as I had always been very interested in, in Jung's work and thought, um, I recognized that it was present all the way through through Wilson's work. And so it wasn't really entirely a surprise that I discovered something Jungian that he possibly did take into the interior because it's a 1950 edition. And uh, so that was before he came to England, before he published his first novel. Um, but... Um, Palace of the Peacock wasn't actually his first. Uh, he had written, I think, three previous novels and rejected them all because they didn't do what he was trying to do. He wanted to actually express the experience of going into the rainforest, going into the interior of Guyana, which is an extraordinary place uh, if you've ever been there. Um, and... Um, the way in which the living landscapes that he describes there become intimately connected with the inner landscape of the characters, the inner landscape of um, what Jung called the collective unconscious, the archetypes. Um, and um, that is why I would certainly call it an experimental novel. Jung himself said in writing about what he called synchronicity, that is an a-causal connection between things. You know, usually we, for all science, we talk about cause and effect, but Jung posited that there was an a-causal connection between things that we sometimes call coincidence. Literature knows this as metaphor. Um, uh, and Harris, was using that idea, I think, uh, to suggest these connections which go in all the different directions. And some people say, you know, why has he got so much, so many metaphors? Why, why all this this uh, extraordinary language? It's a bit like a kind of jungle. But I would argue that not a word. Uh, is out of place. Not a word could be left out. The The difficulty in the language is not something that he puts there just to be difficult. It is. It has to be there. This is the new conceptual language that Jung said we needed in order to express the ideas of synchronicity. And uh, I had quite a lot of conversations with, uh, with Wilson about that. Um, because he was certainly very open to to those ideas, and I think I think he appreciated uh, when people understood that that was what he was that was what he was doing. The way you describe Harris's experiments, they seem completely entangled with the idea of of landscape or or the jungle. Um, 
in in Heartland especially, do do you think this this novel is is a is a piece of writing that that is is sort of fundamentally about about the the Guyanese landscape? None of them are fundamentally about the landscape, but a lot of them use the landscape uh, are intimately connected with the landscape, but they show how the landscape relates to other things, particularly um, abstract concepts like time and being, um, or quite definite concepts like, like history, myth, religion. There are a whole lot of things, and all of these are connected. Um, one of the ideas that Harris took up was the idea of um, the uh, theater of memory. Um, the theater of memory was a was a, a Renaissance concept, um, and it was connected with Cicero's idea of of how you use memory or how you can give a speech, uh, training your memory uh, by putting particular things in particular places. And then you go round this memory house and find the things. And uh, a man called Camillo in, in uh, the Renaissance um, created or at least talked about a theatre of memory, which would include absolutely everything, um, both on the stage and in the auditorium, you could put the whole of the universe. Uh, and it's something that, that Harris actually plays with, an idea he plays with a lot in Jonestown. Um, and uh, again, one wonders, where do all these things come from? Why is he suddenly bringing in so many strange things from all over the place? Um, and that is the answer. He is creating a kind of memory theatre in which you can establish connections between the most diverse things. Um, and partly that is also what's going on in the landscape. Um, as I say, it's a living landscape. And um, Harris, right from the beginning, I think his first poem that he ever wrote, um, Tell Me Trees, What Are You Whispering? Um, the idea that um, trees and, and plants and rocks and, and so on are actually living that they uh, have a life, an inner life. And um, something that in those days was still quite unusual. And that is partly perhaps the reason that he's been taken up so much by more contemporary eco-critical um, writing. Um, he's way before his time in seeing the importance of landscape and the importance of the interaction between humans and the planet, uh, and, and so on, um, and uh, in a in a rather mystical sense as well. I think he was quite sympathetic to the idea of uh, love, love, uh, Lovelock's idea of Gaia, the idea of kind of the planet as a whole living thing. But again, Harris goes way beyond that as well. Um, it's very difficult to to pin him down to just one thing, but. 
um, yeah, definitely the, the landscape, the Guyanese landscape is important in just about all his novels. It's not true of one or two that he wrote. Um, well, he wrote them all actually in England, but most of them have the Guyanese landscape sort of in the background. Um, Companions of the Day and Night uh, has Mexico rather than Guyana. Um, Black Marsden is in Scotland. Um, but uh, a lot of them are actually in the South American continent, at least. Um, and, um, yeah, the, definitely um, the Guyanese landscape. I'm not quite sure um, whether you can say that uh, it sort of forms a part of a group of novels, because as I say, he, he keeps coming back to them, even in his final novel, The Ghost of Memory, um, an extraordinary book in which a man who is thought to be a terrorist is shot by the police and falls into a painting in which he is part of the painting. Also includes a large section on, um, again, what is the Guyanese landscape. Um, obviously, it helps if you know the Guyanese landscape, um, which is quite extraordinary. You have this flat land on the coast, which is what was settled with sugar plantations and um, has a history of slavery, the Middle Passage, the Africans brought over, uh, and then um, the whole indenture business in which Indians were brought over. So the, uh, the, the labor on the plantations was done first by Africans and then by Indians uh, with a very small white population and then other groups coming in uh, like the Portuguese and as one of the only Caribbean states, a sizable Amerindian population in the interior and all of these then kind of brought together. But um, as I say, in the interior, you get into the rainforest, trackless, well, not quite trackless because people go through it, but uh, a, a perfect wilderness. I haven't actually been through the uh, the rainforest myself. Um, uh, you can do it. You can do a tour right up into the interior if you're not afraid to be uh, bitten by mosquitoes. Um, but what I have done a, a couple of times is um, you can fly from the coast, from Georgetown, up to this extraordinary waterfall, Kaitia, um, which is what is portrayed in Palace of the Peacock, this, the, the, the great waterfall. Uh, and then you can go on uh, into the savannas on the border with, with Brazil. So you fly over it and you see the extent of this. But, you, you know, I think if you actually go up, as Harris did himself, along the rivers and and have to go through the the rapids or go round the rapids through the so-called portages which we find of course in in heartland um then you do have a very exact idea of the of the, the place itself but i noticed that um recently marlon james's um novel um sort of fantasy novel um 
Black Leopard, Red Wolf, um, was reviewed, I think, in The Guardian, and somebody said his description of, of uh, rainforest, of jungle, um, uh, is not convincing. And if you want a, a description which really gets what the forest is like, you should go to the Guyanese genius Wilson Harris, which I thought was very nice. It showed that people are still reading Harris and still noticing what an extraordinary uh, achievement uh, he produced. And one of one of the things that strikes me about Heartland in particular, uh, and probably a lot of uh, Harris's other work, is is how the human beings fit within that that dense, sprawling sort of description of the of the forest. And and Heartland, uh, the main the main character Stevenson. Uh, is making his way through through the the rainforest, and he meets other characters who sort of appear to him as, as ghosts, um, perhaps not not real ghosts. But but uh, Harris has indicated that Heartland is a kind of ghost story, and in your introduction, you you also indicate that it, it that that Stevenson is perhaps being haunted by by these other characters he he meets in the jungle. Um, what what can you say about about that as Heartland being a being a ghost story? Yeah, it's not a conventional ghost story. If you want a conventional ghost story and a brilliant one, in my opinion, you go to Edgar Mittelholtz, My Bones and My Flute. That's an extraordinary book. But this is uh, this is quite different. Um, a, a ghost uh, in in Harris terms, uh, anybody can be a ghost, although they're alive, um, because the potentiality of their life and their death is often uh, simultaneous. They are both things together, just as um, often in Harris you find different characters who are actually the same character or a character dies and then turns up again as a different character. But it's made clear through the language that they are intimately related, that they're actually aspects of the same character. Um, This began right away in in Palace of the Peacock, where the narrator, Dunn, is is two. Uh, He is the, um, the conquistador. He is the the imperialist trying to, um, to, to impose his will on the landscape and the people. But he is also, at the same time, um, a twin brother who sees, the, uh, sees everything very differently. That's one of the reasons that he, that he, he chooses the name Dunn, because um, Dunn could represent the Elizabethan attempt to colonize the world, began in Elizabethan times, but it is also John Dunn, the metaphysical poet and uh, the the poet of the interior, if you like. Um, And here we've got Stevenson. Stevenson um, could be seen as, on the one hand, a representative of the steam age, um, the the engine. Uh, But on the other, we could be thinking of Robert Louis Stevenson and uh, Dr. Jekyll and and Mr. Hyde Um, and the duality of those two. Of course, in in Stevenson, you you know, Jekyll and Hyde, 
um, don't just transform entirely just like that. I mean, it has to be done through through a um, through a, a drug, if you like. But uh, in Harris, uh, you've got the constant um, a constant um, fluidity between um, aspects of character. Um, and you also get, especially in the later novels, you can have people coming in from from previous ages. Um, some of them, uh, some of them, real characters. Some of them, representative characters. The idea being that you have simultaneous time schemes. Um, people have said that uh, in in South America, in the in the pre-Columbian societies, time was not linear. Time uh, had various aspects, circular or or parallel, so that you could cross from one time into the other, rather than only being able to move along a, a line, a, a sort of you know because very difficult for us to think of it like that. We don't have that kind of idea in the way we normally think about the world, but we're just possibly too um, captive of our, uh, what I'd call scientific view of, of things. Um, and um, that's uh, one of the things again about Harris's writing that he has coming back to clr james he has a scientific if you like a material view things happening according to a time scheme uh if you like conventional plot and you also have something else underneath which is only available to what i would call poetic language poetic language is a language of association of metaphor in which one thing can mean other things at the same time and usually does mean other things at the same time. Um, and that's difficult for some people. They don't like it. They, they like um, to, you know, to have a, a real world that they can recognize and and i think they're a bit scared by the idea so i could call that what you could call that a ghost story if you like they're scared by the idea of this indeterminacy harris was was fascinated by the ideas of um uh, of quantum mechanics and in particular, the famous experiment, which proves that, that, that particles are both waves and particles at the same time. Uh, and that, you know, it can go through one hole and, and be in two places at the same time. And some of the other ideas of, of quantum theory are, are equally interesting. You know, the, the idea that a particle could be uh, in one place and on the other side of the universe at the same time. Um, this was something that, that very much um, corresponded to Harris's way of looking at life in, as he saw it and as he created it through his, through his work. I, I don't know if I've interpreted this correctly, but one of the characters in the, in the novel seems to be dead and alive at the same time. Um, Stevenson meets a pork knocker called De Silva, 
Oh um, yeah, yeah. And mm-hmm. and then sees his dead body down yes. a ravine later. So th- there's some some indication that that these things had happened at the same time. Yes, um, uh, and and you get that right from the beginning. Um, everything is is indeterminate in that way. Um, right, the, the very first lines of Palace of the Peacock suggest that Dunn is dead, but the language um, suggests, one, that he's thrown from his horse, two, that he's hanged, and third, that he is shot. And you probably recall as well from Jonestown that um, one of the characters um, is planning to, to shoot somebody but at the same time, um, the other character is is shooting. Um, so you get, as I say, this this great indeterminacy. And the idea is, of course, that uh, all of us are connected. That all of us uh, have all these different aspects to our personalities, and that that we cannot just simply isolate one from the other. Uh, Sure. I mean, uh, the question of, of who is alive and who is dead, that runs right the way through uh, all his novels. And as, as I was pointing out, the last novel is called The Ghost of Memory. So um, this fascination with the idea of the ghost uh, runs right through his work. But as I say, not in a conventional sense. Uh, the way we've talked about Harris's work uh so far in this in this podcast um it it we we've sort of highlighted the complexity of it but but do you think heartland uh in particular and harris's work more generally fits fits into the category of post colonial literature or or does it complicate that that categorization oh definitely um Post-colonial literature obviously um, developed as an answer to colonialism. The idea, Ngugi Wathiongo, that we needed to decolonize the mind um, because after independence, um, this was not the same as decolonization for the formerly colonized countries. They still continued to think in the same ways. So, um, all post-colonial literature is is kind of trying to find a way to um, recreate a new identity. Um, Sometimes in the Caribbean, if if we just stick with the Caribbean because it's a bit complicated to talk about all the post-colonial things that you find in in different places, India, South Africa, Australia, and so on. But in the Caribbean, um, there is of course the, the the added complication that there is basically no indigenous population. The indigenous population of the Caribbean islands, um, not completely in Guyana, but the, the islands, was eradicated. Um, genocide, uh, in other words. The, the original Amerindian inhabitants were removed. And um, then we got this new society created through slavery. Uh, Africans brought to work on the plantations. Uh, which were owned by the English sugar producers. And then um, when, uh, when, when the British began to get um, more queasy about the idea of slavery, 
Um, of course, we get the, uh, the movement uh, to end slavery. And that was partly um, uh, strengthened by, um, by rebellions on the part of the slaves themselves, famously in, in Jamaica, in Guyana. And um, then when slavery was, was abolished, um, all the slave owners complained and they said, you know, our business is ruined, um, therefore you have to compensate us. And this is one of the amazing um, injustices of, of history. And the, the slaves, the former slaves, did not get a penny in compensation for all the work they'd done for nothing. Uh, so there was, a, there was a system of apprenticeship um, which was just a, a term um, to cover up the fact that they were going to keep the slaves. Uh, the, it was the sugar producers, the, the plantation owners, who were given an extraordinary amount of compensation and used it to bring indentured laborers over from, from India. And um, so in the Caribbean, you have this mixture of uh, different races, in, but the, the main races are, are the Africans and, and the Indians. Now, the problem with um, post-colonial in that sense is quite a lot of early post-colonial work was trying to find the African origins of the former slaves. But that, of course, completely left out all the other groups. Um, and this remains a, a problem right up to today. Um, the idea of post-colonial literature as finding a way back to an original, um, and if it's only African, that doesn't really do it. Harris always rejected that idea. In Harris's work, um, he was much more interested in the hybrid nature of the Caribbean population. He himself was a, um, a racial mix of all sorts of races. And um, that is one of the ways in which Harris's work is different. So, yeah, with, with Harris, um, for example, that's the big difference between Harris and his contemporary, the poet Martin Carter. Martin Carter started off his poetic uh, career as a poet of the post-colonial, of rebellion against colonial authorities and colonial ideas. Later on, his, his later poetry goes much further towards what Harris was doing. But, but Harris um, wasn't interested in that. Um, he did have very revolutionary ideas about politics. He recognized all the injustices of what had happened. He didn't shut his eyes to it in any way, but he thought that it could all too easily, that type of post-colonial reaction, could all too easily lead into just simply its opposite. Uh, it, it's the idea that you have a right to feel you've been hard done by, that, that everything ha has been done to you, and, and that simply can lead into a similar type of behavior, a kind of colonialism in reverse, if you like. 
Um, and he was far more interested in finding some kind of synthesis. So we get um, a post-colonial thinker like Homi Baba talking about um, the third space, uh, a space of hybridity. And, and Harris fits into that uh, very much more clearly. That, that's fascinating. Um, through all, all of this, through, through all of Harris's, Harris's novels um, that we've talked about and all of the, the sort of thinking behind Harris's fiction, what do you think the legacy of, of Sir Wilson Harris is today? And, and do you see his influence in any work being produced today? Nobody writes quite like Harris. Um, it would be difficult and it would probably be seen as pastiche, just as nobody writes exactly like, uh, like Joyce. Um, but his influence is still very strong. Um, most writers in the Caribbean will say that they were influenced by reading Harris. Um, in some, it's clearer than in others. I'm thinking of the Guyanese uh, Fred Degas, for example, or Guyanese-British David Dabadine. David Dabadine's, um, his work is, is um, sometimes influenced perhaps by uh, magic realism. Um, I, I call his work realist magicalism, um, and he is def he was definitely influenced by by Harris, and, and makes a joke about it as well. In one of Dabadine's novels, he has two characters who are priests. One is called Father Wilson, and the other is Father Harris, and they are um, constantly uh, sort of bickering with each other as adversarial twins, which was a, a thing that Wilson Harris was very interested in. The adversarial twins. This comes from from Jung again, and uh, it was Merlin and Parsifal were the adversarial twins. And again, we see what we've just been talking about, the Parsifal, the, the hero in the real world, if you like, uh, and Merlin, uh, the magical um, in, in the other world. But at the same time, they're constantly relating to each other. Um, so um, definitely those two writers, um you might also mention perhaps um Marcia Douglas a book called The Marvelous Equations of the Dread a novel in base rhythm um i think harris's influence is is fairly clear in that one and actually that was one of the novels that at the end of his life he was most excited about i used to occasionally say you should read this or you should read that and he loved that book. He thought that was marvellous. He said, uh, you know, that this is really a, a very good novel. And and just uh, just stepping away from Wilson Harris, we're, we're asking everybody that we talk to on the 99 Novels podcast this question. Um, and, and it's the final question. It's, it's if you could choose a hundredth novel to add to Burgess's list, what would it be and why? <laughs> do they have to be, do they have to fall into the time period? You can choose any novel that you, oh, you, right. you okay. would like. Um, well, I haven't only got one. I've, I've got a number um, that I noted. I was surprised that um, Burgess didn't include one of my favourite novels ever is Sam Beckett's What, which was published in 1953, so would have 
fitted into the time period. Um, what is an extraordinary novel I, I keep coming back to. Um, uh, then um, I am a great admirer of the Irish writer Colm Toybean. Um, for example, the novel The Heather Blazing um, is an extraordinary novel. Um, but he's he's still writing extraordinary novels today. He's one of the best prose writers, I think, around. Um, one that um, one that um, Burgess could have known um, at the end of the period he was talking about, J.M. Kutsia, South African writer, Waiting for the Barbarians, which was published in 1980. So that would fit. Um, I'm also a great... Um, admirer of the work of David Malouf in Australia, and particular, particularly the, the novel Remembering Babylon, which um, writes back in a way to what I regard as William Golding's best novel. Um, of course, uh, you, you'll know that, that Burgess only included The Spire. And, uh, have I read somewhere that, that Burgess was not a fan of Golding? Didn't um, think much of it. It's a slightly more complicated story. I think Burgess uh, was insulted that that Golding beat him to the Booker Prize in 1980. Um, uh, so yes. the, the who who knows is the is the answer to that question. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, which is rather like you know um, Naipaul beating Harris to the to the Nobel, which in my opinion Harris deserved uh, far more. But there we are. That's my opinion. No, uh, Golding's Darkness Visible, a 1979 novel, um, uh, which I regard as Golding's greatest, actually. And that relates to Remembering Babylon, or Remembering Babylon relates to that. But um, if we're talking about Harris, uh, I would definitely go for Jonestown, as is probably his greatest achievement. Um, although the last novels... Um, the Dark Jester, the, uh, the Mask of the Beggar, and the Ghost of Memory. Um, the last novels are very, um, they're very, very powerful. They remind me of, of uh, the late string quartets of Beethoven, and therefore, by extension, uh, T.S. Eliot's Four Quartets. Um, they have that special, mature quality um that you can come back to or you have to come back to again and again i, I will live with those novels uh, always um so uh, those certainly um are ones that i wanted to mention that's that's great our reading list grows ever longer <laughs> so michael thank you for joining us today on on the 99 novels podcast it's been a really fascinating journey through through the work of of wilson harris thank you it was an honour and a pleasure. Thank you as well. You have been listening to 99 Novels, a podcast by the International Anthony Burgess Foundation. Heartland by Wilson Harris, with an introduction by Michael Mitchell, is out now from People Tree Press. The Palace of the Peacock, Wilson Harris's first novel, has recently been reissued by Faber Editions and is available now. For more information about Anthony Burgess and to find out how you can support the work of the Burgess Foundation, visit www.anthonyburgess.org.
The theme music is Anthony Burgess's Concerto for Flute, Strings and Piano in D minor. It's performed by No Dice Collective, who can be found online at nodicecollective.com. If you'd like to join the conversation and suggest your 100th book to add to Burgess's list, you can use the hashtag 99novels on Twitter. If you have enjoyed this episode, why not leave us a review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts?